Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you the podcast, Two Sober Chicks. Hey, y'all. September 22nd. My allergies are terrible. What a nice way to start off the podcast. I'm great. How are you? I'm very stressed out <laughs> today, in case you can't tell. Uh, a number of stupid, ridiculous things that bother me, like the neighbors that bought the back acreage wanting to walk the property so that they can put up a fence. And I'm like very sensitive about my land and my trees. And I'm also very sensitive to the fact that I have been very gracious and welcoming to the wife and she doesn't answer my texts. So it stresses me out just to think I might have bad neighborly relations. Like I live in the country, so and everybody has acres, but they're all joined at one point. And I have great relationships with the people on either side of us, but the people that moved in the back, I'm very concerned about. (laughs) It's just so dumb. But I saw them on our property a couple weeks ago, and they were standing at one of the fence lines, and the wife was pulling shit off my trees. And they were looking like up towards our house and pointing. It was eight o'clock in the morning, clearly standing right on the other side of my fence, which is still my land. And their dog was running around in our land and they weren't taking, I was just like astonished that someone would be so rude and disrespectful, especially when I am so careful with my neighbors to make sure I'm good. I'm like the kind of bitch that brings bread over to my neighbors and makes them home sweet home embroideries for their walls like that's just a part of who I am and to have someone not reciprocate or even acknowledge and then to take liberties with my land (sighs) my nose is running too I have allergies right now what a delightful podcast I'm sure you're glad you tuned in Anyways, Lisa and I were supposed to record today, but she has a migraine, so we're going to aim for tomorrow or the next day, and I know it's been a couple weeks since I brought you one of our stories, so we're going to continue with the series Storytime, and today we're reading Story 7 from the back of the big book, part 2, page 328, and the title is Crossing the River of Denial. Oh, such a good title. I can't wait to read this. Plus, I can see that it's a she, so it's even better. She finally realized that when she enjoyed her drinking, she couldn't control it. And when she controlled it, she couldn't enjoy it. Denial is the most cunning, baffling, and powerful part of my disease, the disease of alcoholism. When I look back now, it's hard to imagine I didn't see a problem with my drinking. But instead of seeing the truth when all of the yet's as in, that hasn't happened to me yet, started happening. I just kept lowering my standards. Me too. Dad was an alcoholic. Me too. And my mother drank throughout her pregnancy. Same. But I don't blame my parents for my alcoholism. Me too. Kids with a lot worse upbringings than mine did not turn out alcoholic, while some that had it a lot better did. In fact, I stopped wondering why me a long time ago. As Lisa will say, why not me? 
It's like a man standing on a bridge in the middle of a river with his pants on fire, wondering why his pants are on fire. It doesn't matter. Just jump in. And that is exactly what I did with AA once I finally crossed the river of denial. I grew up feeling as if I was the only thing keeping my family together. This, compounded by the fear of not being good enough, was a lot of pressure for a little girl. Everything changed with my first drink at the age of 16. All the fear, shyness, and disease evaporated with that first burning swallow of bourbon straight from the bottle during a liquor cabinet raid at a slumber party. I got drunk, blacked out, threw up, had dry heaves, was sick to death the next day, and I knew I would do it again. For the first time, I felt part of a group without having to be perfect to get approval. I went through college on scholarships, work-study programs, and student loans. Classes and work kept me too busy to do too much drinking. Plus, I was engaged to a boy who was not alcoholic. However, I broke off our relationship during my senior year after discovering drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Companions to my best friend, alcohol. I proceeded to explore all that the late 60s and early 70s offered. After backpacking around Europe, I decided to settle in a large city. Well, I made it all right, to full-blown alcoholism. A big city is a great place to be an alcoholic. Nobody notices. Three martini lunches, drinks after work, and a nightcap at the corner bar was just a normal day. And didn't everyone have blackouts? I used to joke about how great blackouts were because you saved so much time in transit. One minute you're here, the next minute you're there. In retrospect, making jokes, just laughing it off, helped solidify my unfaltering denial. Another trick was selecting companions who drank just a little bit more than I did. Then I could always point to their problem. One such companion led to my first arrest. If the driver of the car had only pulled over when the police lights flashed, we would have been fine. If, when I had practically talked our way out of it, the driver had kept his mouth shut, we would have been fine. But no, he started babbling about how he was in rehab. I got off with a misdemeanor, and for years I completely discounted that arrest because it was all his fault. I simply ignored that I had been drinking all day. One morning while I was at work, a hospital called, telling me to get there quickly. My father was there, dying of alcoholism. He was 60. I had seen him in hospitals before, but this time was different. With stomach sorely distended, swollen with fluids, his non-functioning kidneys and liver could no longer process, he lingered for three weeks. Alcoholic death is very painful and slow. Seeing him die of alcoholism convinced me I could never become an alcoholic. I knew too much about the disease, had too much self-knowledge to ever fall prey. Oh. Uh, what is What does our program say? Self-knowledge avails us nothing? I never remember that quote. You know what I mean. I shipped his body back home without attending the funeral. I could not even help my grandmother bury her only son because by then I was inextricably involved in an affair mired in sex and alcohol. Plummeting into the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that that relationship became, I had my first drunk driving arrest. It terrified me. I could have killed someone. Driving in a total blackout, I came to handing my driver's license to the patrolman. I swore it would never happen again. Three months later, it happened again. 
What I didn't know then was that when I put alcohol in my body, I'm powerless over how much and with whom I drink. All good intentions drowned in denial. I remember joking about how most people spent their entire lives without ever seeing the inside of a jail. And here, a woman of my stature had been arrested three times. But, I would think, I've never really done hard time. Never actually spent the night in jail. Then I met Mr. Wrong, my husband-to-be, and all that changed. I spent my wedding night in jail. Like every other time, however, it wasn't my fault. There we were, still in our wedding clothes. If he had just kept his mouth shut after the police arrived, we would have been fine. I had them convinced that he had attacked the valet because our wedding money was missing. Actually, he thought the valet had stolen the marijuana we were going to smoke. In reality, I was so drunk I had lost it. During the interrogation of the valet in the restaurant parking lot, my husband became so violent, the officer put him in the back of the patrol car. When he tried to kick out the rear windows, the policeman retaliated. I pleaded with the officer as a second policeman arrived, and both bride and groom were taken to jail. It was then that the stolen marijuana cigarettes were discovered, to my horror, in central booking as they cataloged my belongings. I was arrested for three felonies, including drunk and disorderly, and two misdemeanors, but it was all my husband's fault. I had practically nothing to do with it. He had a drinking problem. I stayed in that abusive marriage for nearly seven years and continued to focus on his problems. Toward the end of the marriage, in my misguided attempts to set a good example for him, plus he was drinking too much of my vodka, I mandated no booze in the house. Still, why should I be denied a cocktail after returning home from a stressful day at the office just because he had a problem? So I began hiding my vodka in the bedroom and still did not see anything wrong with this behavior. He was my problem. I accepted a transfer with a promotion. Yes, my professional life was still climbing. Shortly after the divorce, now I was sure my problems were over, except that I brought me with them. I brought me with me. Once alone in a new place, my drinking really took off. I did not have to be a good example anymore. For the first time, I realized that perhaps my drinking was getting a bit out of hand. But I knew you'd drink too if you had my stress. Recent divorce, new home, new job, didn't know anyone, and an unacknowledged progressive disease that was destroying me. Finally, I made some friends who drank just as I did. Our drinking was disguised as fishing trips and chili cook-offs, but they were really excuses for week-long binges. After a day's drinking disguised as softball, I nicked an old woman's fender driving home. Of course it was not my fault. She pulled out in front of me. That the accident occurred at dusk and I had been drinking since 10 a.m. had nothing to do with it. My alcoholism had taken me to such depths of denial and heights of arrogance that I waited for the police so they'd know it was her fault too. Well, it didn't take them long to figure it out. Once again, pulled from the car, hands cuffed behind my back, I was taken to jail. But it wasn't my fault. The old broad shouldn't have even been allowed on the road, I told myself. She was my problem. The judge sentenced me to six months in Alcoholics Anonymous. Whoa, I didn't know you could do that. Well, I guess you can. Because I remember being in meetings 
where people came up to me and asked if I could sign their papers that they had attended meetings. But that's the first time that's ever really landed for me. Anyways, I was outraged. By now, I had been arrested five times, but all I could see was a hard partier, not an alcoholic. Didn't you people know the difference? So I started going to these stupid meetings and identified myself as an alcoholic so you'd sign my court card. There it is. Even though I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. I had a six-figure income, owned my own home. I had a car phone. Oh, do you remember car phones? I used ice cubes for God's sake. Everyone knows an alcoholic, at least one that had to go to AA, is a skid row bum in a dirty raincoat drinking from a brown paper bag. So each time you read that part in Chapter 5 of the big book that says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, my ears closed. You had the disease of alcoholism, and the last thing I wanted to be was an alcoholic. Eventually, you talked about my feelings in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous until I could no longer close my ears. I heard women, beautiful, successful women in recovery, talk about the things they had done while drinking, and I would think, I did that, or I did worse than that. Then I began to see the miracles that happen only in AA, people who would nearly crawl in the door sick and broken and who in a few weeks of meetings and not drinking one day at a time would get their health back, find a little job and friends who really cared and then discover a God in their lives. But the most compelling part of AA, the part that made me want to try this sober thing, was the laughter. The pure joy of the laughter that I heard only from sober alcoholics. Still, the thought of getting sober terrified me. I hated the woman I had become, a compulsive, obsessive daily drinker, not dressing on weekends, always afraid of running out of alcohol. I'd start thinking about a drink by noon and would leave the office earlier and earlier. Or, promising myself that I wouldn't drink that night, I'd invariably find myself in front of the refrigerator with a drink in my hand, vowing, tomorrow, I won't drink tomorrow. I despised all of it, but at least it was familiar. I had no idea what sobriety felt like, and I could not imagine life without alcohol. I had reached that terrifying jumping-off point where I couldn't drink anymore, but I just couldn't not drink. For almost 23 years, I had done something nearly every day of my life to change reality to one degree or another, yet I had to try the sober thing. To this day, I am amazed at people who get sober for before the holidays. I couldn't even attempt it until after the Super Bowl. One last blowout party when I swore I wouldn't get drunk. When I put alcohol in my body, I'd lose the ability to choose how much I drank, and Super Bowl Sunday that year was no different. I ended up on someone's couch instead of my own bed and was sick to death all the next day at work. That week, I had to go to a hockey game. It was a work event, so I tried to really watch my drinking, consuming only two large cups of beer, which for me wasn't even enough to catch a buzz. And that was the beginning of my spiritual awakening. Sitting near the ice, frustrated, and pondering the fact that two tall beers didn't give me any relief, something in my head, and I know it wasn't me, said, so why bother? At that moment, I knew what the big book meant about the great obsession of every abnormal drinker being to somehow, someday, control and enjoy his drinking. 
on Super Bowl Sunday, when I enjoyed it, I couldn't control it. And at the hockey game, when I controlled it, I couldn't enjoy it. There is no more denying that I was an alcoholic. What an epiphany. I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous the next night, knowing I wanted what you had. I sat in that cold metal chair, just as I had for the past five months, and read step one on the wall for the hundredth time. But this time, I asked with all my heart for God to help me, and a strange thing happened. A physical sensation came over me, like a wave of pure energy, and I felt the presence of God in that dingy little room. I went home that night, and for the first time in years, I did not have to open the cupboard with the half-gallon jug of vodka in it. Not that night, or any night since. God had restored me to sanity, and I took step two the very moment I surrendered and accepted my powerlessness over alcohol and the unmanageability of my life. I attended at least one meeting every day, emptied ashtrays, washed coffee pots, and on the day I took a 30-day chip, a friend took me to an AA get-together. I was in absolute awe of the power of 2,000-plus sober alcoholics holding hands, saying the final prayer together, and I wanted to stay sober more than I wanted life itself. Returning home, I begged God on my knees to help me stay sober one more day. I told God to take the house, take the job, take everything if that's what was needed for me to stay sober. That day I learned two things, the real meaning of step three, and to always be careful what I prayed for. After five months of sobriety, I lost that six-figure job with the firm. The wreckage of my past had caught up with me, and I was out of work for a year. That job would have been lost whether I was drunk or sober, but thank goodness I was sober or I probably would have killed myself. When I was drinking, the prestige of the job was my self-worth, the only thing that made me worth loving. Now I was starting to love myself because AAs had unconditionally loved me until I could. At five months, I realized that the world might never build a shrine to the fact that I was sober. Oh God, that's an amazing line. I understood that it was not the world's job to understand my disease. Rather, it was my job to work my program and not drink, no matter what. At nine months of sobriety, I lost the big house that I bought just to prove to you I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. In between five and nine months, my house was robbed. I had a biopsy on my cervix, and I had my heart broken. And the miracle of all miracles was that I didn't have to drink over any of it. This from a woman who had to drink over all of it. I was so unique and so arrogant when I got here. I think God knew that he had to show me early on that there was nothing a drink would make better. He showed me that his love and the power of the steps and the fellowship could keep me from picking up a drink one day at a time, sometimes one hour at a time, no matter what. A drink would not bring back the job, the house, or the man, so why bother? I found everything I had ever looked for in Alcoholics Anonymous. I used to thank God for putting AA in my life. Now I thank AA for putting God in my life. I found my tribe, the social architecture that fulfills my every need for camaraderie and conviviality. I learned how to live. When I asked how I could find my self-esteem, you told me, by doing worthwhile acts, i.e. esteemable things. You explained the big book had no chapters titled Into Thinking or Into Feeling, only Into Action. 
I found plenty of opportunity for action in AA. I could be just as busy and helpful to others as I wanted to be as a sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was never a joiner, but I got deeply involved in AA service because you told me if I did, I would never have to drink again. You said as long as I put AA first in my life, everything that I put second would be first class. Oh, I've never heard that. This has proved to be true over and over again. So I continued to put AA and God first, and everything I ever lost was returned many times over. The career that I lost has been restored with even greater success. The house that I lost has been replaced by a townhouse that is just the right size for me. So here I am, sober, successful, serene. Just a few of the gifts of the program for surrendering, suiting up, and showing up for life every day. Good days and bad days, reality is a wild ride, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. I don't question how this program works. I trust in my God, stay involved in AA service, go to lots of meetings, work with others, and practice the principles of the steps to the best of my willingness each day. I don't know which of these keeps me sober, and I'm not about to try to find out. It's worked for quite a few days now, so I think I'll try it again tomorrow. Okay, for sure that's in my top favorite three stories from the back of the big book. I feel like I was just at a meeting where someone told their story. That is so cool. I wish I knew her. Um, so I identified with so much of that. But the thing that came up for me the most is that I wish my parents could get this program because I identified with so much of her story both when she was drinking and especially when she got sober and what has been restored to her I see my parents at almost 70 both of them struggling and devolving and degenerating lower and lower with their alcoholism and they just don't get it and you know when this woman talked about God in the beginning of the story Maybe I'll find it here. Um, here it is. I can't believe I found it. God had restored me to sanity. Oh. Oh, when she feels God in the meeting and she feels like God restored her to sanity and she got that step two. So my parents, I would like to think that it's because my parents don't believe in God. Um, which has a lot to do with their suffering. But then I think of all of the stories I've heard where people didn't believe in God, kind of like me, where I believed in God, but that he had nothing to do with me or, or humanity, period, could not offer us any help. He just sort of like took the, the great clockmaker that just looked down at the world. Um, get God. And it changes their lives. So I can't really say that. But uh, last week was a particularly difficult week for my siblings, not so much for me, thanks to a lot of therapy, AA and Al-Anon, because my parents, <laughs> I, you know, you have to laugh because it's absolutely ridiculous. My, to, the Coles notes is that my parents have been binge drinkers and prescription pill takers for a very, very long time since my teens. So that's like over 30 years. And so we're used to them going missing or what my grandmother would call going into hibernation. Um, 
you know, we've all done the interventions. Uh, basically, I've delivered everything in my capacity through all of my connections in treatment centers and the recovery world to their doorstep on a gold platter. Um, my brother, the same. He's not in recovery, but he went about it another way. And just nothing works. You know, it's like you can lead the horse to water, but it's that scenario. But last week, they ha- they live in a new neighborhood now. And the reason I'm laughing is because the jig is up, which is like the most horrifying thing for my parents, because my parents present very, very well. My father is an ex-airline captain. My mom is a beautiful, like, version of Martha Stewart. Not that Martha Stewart is ugly, but my mom's pretty hot, or she was before these last few years of deranged alcoholism. Anyways, you could... You would never think my parents do what they do. It is just like, it's like a Jerry Springer situation just with money, essentially. So we present very well, our whole family. I learned from the best. Anyways, they moved into this like new neighborhood and with like big, beautiful houses. And they had no idea what they were in for because in their last neighborhood where they lived for 20 years, um, the neighbors just bought into the dysfunction because a they partied as hard as my parents but they never wanted to like ruffle any feathers or call anyone out not these new neighbors (laughs) that are all like starbucks moms that will not put up with this shit where your neighbors are not seen for weeks and my dad for some reason Well, listen, my dad, since I was little, was always very security conscious. But in this new house, they have those little slim windows on either side of the door. And he's taken to putting cardboard in them at night. I'm not sure why with all of the tens of thousands of dollars they've spent on the basement and landscaping and window treatments. He can't just have someone come in. Listen, I did it on my house at my house on at Walmart and Amazon for less than $15. So I'm not really sure why they can't do it. But he has taken to putting up these long strips of cardboard at night. But I guess during this latest binge of theirs, he has been putting them up all day. And their cars haven't moved from the driveway. And they haven't seen hide nor hair of my parents. And they've rang the doorbell and called my parents and no one's answered. And my mom has taken to telling all of the neighbors that my dad has dementia which is not true. Um, He has normal age-related memory problems. And my mom is quote-unquote ill, which is just her labeling of the fact that she has drank every single day for the last 30 years and all of these mysterious illnesses that have nothing to do, of course, with drinking um, can't be solved. Like, I have diverticulitis. Um, I have cancer. I have a tumor on my colon. I have uh, um, plantar fasciitis. I have uh, fibromyalgia. Listen, all of those things are real things, but my mom does not realize and does not tell anyone what she's really doing, which is she's drinking every day and taking pills and doing God knows what else. Anyways, gosh, so much for the Coles notes. Um, well, the neighbors are not having it. And so they called the police to do a wellness check, which then resulted in the police getting a battering ram and banging down the garage door to get inside to what they thought was going to be two dead bodies because the stench of the garbage in the house was so overwhelming. 
and they had barricaded the front door and there was blood on a pillow that no one could explain. And my mother, God bless alcoholics, my mother standing there trying to lie to the police officer about everything that he was bringing up to her attention about what he had observed while she reeked of what he said was whiskey and had no shoes on and was braless under a see-through tank top and looked like she hadn't bathed in a couple of weeks and was shaking and slurring. I, I'm. It's just like that would be the that would be like the equivalent of Kim Kardashian being in that state. Like my mother does not ever ever lose control or present that way. <laughs> so, anyways. My siblings were very upset because they go back into the same emotional patterns that they've always had because they don't go to therapy and they're not quote unquote addicts. So they don't have the program of recovery that I am so grateful that was given to me by the fellowship and by the God of my understanding. So I explained to my sister why, you know, when you work through your shit and you do your work, instead of something like that being a monsoon or a hurricane or an avalanche or an earthquake it's like a little blip on your radar where you're like okay and then you go on and live your life so because of like I said the fellowship the program of recovery the grace of God I've been able to not drink over it not get too emotional over it to be honest I'm more except when I was dragged into the fact that they want to call in and uh, go to the courthouse and get an f2 which would force them into a psychiatric evaluation and then force them into therapy because our fear is that, you know, dad's going to fall down the stairs and he's going to die, which would be an alcohol-related death. Or, you know, who knows? Wet brain, uh, abuse in the house. They couldn't explain blood all over the pillow. So reading this story just reminded me of how bad it can get. And despite how bad it can get, it can get so good. And it's so worth it. And we have to remember where we came from, which is why we have to identify. Because if our, our alcoholism is waiting for us to go, man, it wasn't that bad. Oh, it's fine. And I see this reflected in my parents, especially my mom, who I am like a little mini version of. If I ever want to think about what it would turn into if I had a drink again, all I have to do is look at my mom who has no joy in her life. They have no God. They have no joy. They have no recovery. They are like a slave to their addiction, and they just won't see it any other way. No amount of, it talks in our book, like basically no amount of emotional pleading from people will force them into a space where they get help. So all I can really do is pray for them and ask for prayer for them to see the light. Because I know, I know, listen, I'm going to be very blunt and say, I know God. And not one person I know that has ever reached out to God to make himself known or to help them hasn't come through for them. And I know I'm not saying that God fixes or takes away our addiction. I'm saying that the face of God is seen every day in a hundred different ways when we go out into the world. That's why gratitude is so important because you start to see the gifts you were given beyond your own ability from a divine being. And so... um, Uh, the word that keeps coming to my mind is stay for me for you for all of us just to stay in this program because it's not better outside of the program not only is it not better outside of the program it's so much better in the program our way of living truly is trudging the happy road of destiny it's hard at times but look at what we get 
Look at what we get. So I pray for all of you the same thing I pray for my parents, which is to have a loving, compassionate, beautiful, open connection to your higher power. Because that's what this program is all about. Talks about no human aid could have relieved our alcoholism. The program is our 12 steps of fellowship. And it is our partnership with God in our 12 steps that changes our lives. So thank you for changing my life. I am forever grateful. I wish you a truly happy 24. And if it's not happy, I'll... Um, this too shall pass. Good or bad, right? Best day of your life? No, pass. Worst day of your life? It will pass. So thanks for listening to my dad talk. As always, if you want to reach out to Lisa or me, you can email us at twosoberchicks at gmail.com. You can go to our Instagram page, Two Sober Chicks. Um, we, our opinions are ours alone. We are not experts in anything. We just talk to you like we talk to each other. And um, it's time for me to go. Sometimes I don't know how to end these things. But, oh, you know what? I'll do it the way the sound of music ends and the kids go to bed. I don't know if I can remember it. Um, goodbye, good night, Alvita Saint. Ugh, do you know what I'm trying to say? Anyways, that's enough from me. Okay, bye, thank you, love you. <laughs>